How about we don't try and make food perfect because it's not perfect, just like life's not perfect. If you're recycling, that's awesome. But you also need to look at all these other pieces and you don't have to be doing them perfectly. The first step is reduce, then reuse, then recycle. They are in order. Get inspired by people fighting to make this world better for everyone. This is Unwasted with Imperfect. Hello, and welcome back to the Unwasted Podcast. I'm your host, Riley Brock, and it's my honor every week to talk with experts in food, health, sustainability, and generally making the world a better, tastier place. We all love chocolate, but what do we actually know about where our chocolate comes from and how it's made? Chocolate, like coffee, is a remarkably hard-to-grow tropical fruit that has paradoxically become commonplace at kitchen tables and cupboards all over the world. How did this come to be, and what are the unintended consequences of chocolate's popularity? About 70% of the world's chocolate is grown in West Africa, and a surprising amount of that is grown by child laborers. How did chocolate and child labor become so intertwined, and what would a more ethical chocolate industry look like? To help us unpack the surprisingly complicated world of chocolate, we have the chief chocolate evangelist from Tony's Chocoloni here with us today, Inzo Van Zanten. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Really happy to have you here all the way from Holland. You're officially the guest who has called in from the farthest away, so congratulations. <laughs> nice, nice. Nice to have that record on my name. <laughs> yeah. I want to start, your website has an inspiring but shocking pledge I want to start with, which is, together we'll make chocolate 100% slave-free. Why is there currently slavery in the chocolate industry? <laughs> Why is there slavery in the chocolate industry? Well, there's a, there isn't a short answer to that one. I think there's a very systemic problem in the cocoa industry in itself. So um, uh, the farmers that grow cocoa uh, aren't paid enough for their produce, while chocolate manufacturers at the other side of the value chain uh, earn a lot of money, honestly, uh, and that um, uh, that value isn't uh, uh, isn't equally divided within that value chain. So. By underpaying these people uh, so incredibly much and having them stuck in a very systemic, uh, vicious cycle of poverty, uh, sometimes all that is left for them to do is to have uh, child labor and unfortunately sometimes uh, illegal and forced child labor too. So uh, it's a systemic problem where we are all responsible to change that from, uh, from within, I would say. So when when we say slavery in chocolate, what does that look like specifically? Is it really just is it child labor? Like that is the the form of slavery that's currently happening, or, or how? So, what, so there's 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 different levels, and there's also different definitions of this across the globe. And I would refer to our annual report or our website to really dive into that. But but that would take hours just to talk about that one subject. Yeah. Um, it is, uh, it is, it is. We call it a modern form of slavery, to be very specific. So yeah. it is, it is children being forced to unpaid labor, often outside of the family environment, uh, and uh, and it's the it's the worst forms of this forced child labor that we consider modern forms of slavery. But you can debate this for hours, yeah. uh, as long as we agree that there's a problem in that industry where it's really about uh, 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 kids working that shouldn't be working and kids that should be going to school. Uh, then uh, we need to solve that problem together, I would say. Yeah. Okay. That's that's a fair point. You know, even, you know, obviously it's an intense term, uh, slavery for a ton of reasons, but I think, yeah, even if it is child labor versus slavery, either one is incredibly problematic. And I think any consumer of chocolate would, would not want their 
beloved dessert to be supporting that labor practice. So I think that's, yeah, exactly. that's an important so takeaway. You're hitting the nail on the head. It's exactly the point. So we consume chocolate almost on a daily basis across the globe, right? Yep. Uh, but it's a very unknown reality that there's a very bitter story to that sweet story of chocolate, yep. which is the fact that um, in Western Africa, there's uh, more than 2 million children working in illegal circumstances, of which at least 30,000 are caught in this system that we were just talking about, which is really about a modern form of slavery and illegal child labor. That's insane. I, the question that comes to my mind first is, given that this is such a shocking backstory to probably the most beloved dessert on the planet, why don't more people know about this? Well, it's a very it's a very hidden problem in itself, right? So uh, it's a very uh, it isn't at the surface because cocoa is grown on a totally different side of the world than where the majority of chocolate is is consumed. Yeah. Uh, so consumers aren't faced with this reality on a day to day basis because it's so far away, and it's also within Western Africa, literally quite far away because these are tiny farms left and right all across the, those countries. Um, uh, there aren't huge plantations. These are two, three, four hectare size family run businesses scattered all over the place. So it's yeah. very, uh, uh, and, and also these countries were uh, obviously uh, uh, one or two decades ago consumed by uh, by war, uh, impossibility of even getting into those countries, uh, very little uh, journalists getting into those countries. And that, that changed uh, when indeed in our case, a couple of journalists actually went there and exposed this problem and and, and uh, really uh, uh, were clinging on to exposing this problem uh, across uh, the Dutch market and, and now the global market. Yeah. And when just to be specific, when we say these countries, we're talking about Ghana and the Ivory Coast, right? Are those the big producers? So Exactly. Exactly. So uh, cocoa originally comes from South and Central America. Yeah. Uh, but the majority of cocoa nowadays is grown in Western Africa. And of that, uh, 60% of the global uh, uh, cocoa supply comes from merely two countries, Ghana and Ivory Coast. That is also the countries where the problem of this forced child labor is the biggest. So that is exactly why we're trying to uh, tackle that problem right there. Yeah. And, you know, as part of your work to tackle this problem, you compiled the stories of a lot of these child laborers, you know, through this bitter project. I'm curious, how how did this project come to be? <laughs> That was a quite recent project. I mean, we've been we've been working at this for 15 years now. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, I think it was two or maybe three years ago that we launched a bitter uh, exposition, which was a photo and uh, also word exposition. Uh, and it also we turned it into a book. It was unbranded because we didn't want it to feel like it was marketing. Yeah. Uh, for us, it was really telling the story from these kids themselves. So we interviewed children uh, in Burkina Faso uh, and um, got in touch with them and made a, a photo exposition and, and a book out of it to really make them tell their stories. Yeah. And were there any stories that particularly stuck with you? I've got to tell you, it's been a while since I've read it, but the, the, the thing that, that I think most of them really stuck with me and, and, and a couple specific when there were kids that were actually literally the age of, of my kids. I mean, I've got two kids of 12 and 13. Yeah. And it brings it so close to home when you when you see like, I mean, these these are the same kids as my kids. Right. Yeah. Uh, but they are uh, they are in a di- they were born in a different place. 
uh, and met such hardship uh, in their childhood, which is just, it's, hor- it's horrible, horrific if you read those stories. And at the same time, also very powerful, because there's yep. also a very positive message coming from it. Their resilience and, and, uh, and how they cope with it, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine that's quite that's quite powerful. You know, while digging into this story, I came across the fact that uh, I guess the number of child laborers in the Ivory Coast is apparently on the rise lately. Mm. Why is this? Why is this problem so tricky to kind of get rid of, like this form of labor that's really problematic? It is. It is problematic, and it is uh, the the biggest problem is that it's so ingrained in this system, uh, uh, and it's been there for decades, maybe even centuries. That it's not easy to get it out of that system. Yeah, uh, and it's also hard to get people moving to change. So it's uh, we've been working at this for uh, one and a half decades now. I see there is there is change coming. I mean, there is movement, there's traction that we're gathering and also due to uh, consumers uh, getting more awareness around this issue. uh, There's also more pressure being put on organizations and governments to actually have laws in place or adhere to those laws. And, uh, uh, but it is an issue because it's, it's such a, it's such a systemic uh, problem that's, uh, that's there that we need to break that whole cycle that's, uh, that's in that system. And that isn't easy. It takes time. And um, indeed, uh, latest figures or figures still to come out have, sh- have shown or will show that the problem in absolute terms have grown. It's also because there's been more demand for cocoa in the last uh, couple of decades. So you could say in relative terms, it's diminished, but we can, we're a drop in the ocean, right? Yeah. I mean, we work with a bit more than 6,500 farmers right now and seven cooperatives in Ghana and Ivory Coast. Uh, that is unfortunately still a drop in the ocean. Um, so we need a lot more uh, chocolate manufacturers, chocolate brands, retailers to embrace this and, and work with us instead of competing with us uh, and work with us to make this uh, this uh, system change from within. Yeah. It, you know, this cooperative change you're talking about, I think, is really poignant and is, is kind of the missing link here. Because as I understand it, there was a bill in the early 2000s to force uh, chocolate manufacturers to put slave free on their chocolate bars if, in fact, they did not involve child labor. But the, as I understand it, there was a good amount of pushback from the manufacturers saying, oh, no, that would actually punish the countries of origin. How did this get so complicated? Like something that on paper, it's like, oh, yeah, we want slave free chocolate. But then executing it became such a such a quagmire because uh but then my activist entrepreneurial heart uh, comes up uh, it's it's it is or wasn't in their uh in their interests to have this on their uh, products when they knew that there uh, were forms of modern slavery in their products uh-huh. right so there was pushback there and then there was a protocol that was signed by all of the big chocolate manufacturers to uh, make sure that there were no uh, uh, incidents of illegal child labor in their value chains anymore within five years' time. That deadline wasn't met. The next deadline wasn't met. And now we're almost 20 years down the road and still none of the goals in those protocols have been met. So it's time for change. I mean, it, there needs to be there need to be laws in place, but there needs to be even more, which is really manufacturers taking their responsibility and simply changing their own systems from within. Yeah. And I mean, when we started, they said, "Yeah, but this is small, and you can't scale this." We're market leaders in the Netherlands now. We're available almost globally. We're yeah. showing that it can be skilled and the difference can be made from within. Yeah. There is no reason I can think of not to change that system. Yeah. 
No, really well said. It's an interesting analogy to climate change too, I think. This idea that like, oh, people are like, oh no, it can't be done. We'll, we'll kick the can down the road. But then there's folks like you saying, oh, screw that. Of course it can be done. We're doing it right now. We just need more people to buy it into it. It has to be done. It has, it has to, be to be done. It's ridiculous that we would enjoy a product called chocolate where somewhere in the beginning of that value chain, there's somebody actually suffering to make that product uh, come to life for you, right? And how can you enjoy a bar of chocolate if you are aware of that problem in the chain? I mean, I'll forgive anyone who hadn't, who didn't know about this uh, one or two decades ago, but now we all know. And once you know, you're aware. And when you're aware, you're responsible to act upon that awareness, right? So each and every, even us as consumers, we have responsibility to change that system within. Governments have responsibilities to have laws in place uh, and also have due diligence. Organizations need to do that. Yeah. Uh, and the farmers have their responsibility, right? Uh, and so all, all of us carry a responsibility because only together can we change that system together. And only together can we make all chocolate worldwide 100% slavery, right? It's not about us. It's not yeah. about our chocolate. It's not about our company. It's about all of us changing that system from within. Yeah. No, what you're saying is, is very poignant. It reminds me, I was reading this book about the history of the Caribbean and I learned that one of the first instances of like organized consumer boycotts was the British boycott of Caribbean sugar when a journalist went to the Caribbean and learned that on a lot of these islands, there was slave labor growing sugarcane under really horrific conditions. And, you know, this person came back to London and said, you, this is outrageous. We're putting sugar in our tea, not knowing that suffering is happening to, to allow us to enjoy this sweet treat. So I think, yeah, there's that missing level of, uh, of awareness right now, but it, it sounds exactly. like the tide is shifting and it sounds really analogous, honestly, to a lot of labor rights movements in the past that look, you just need to make this common knowledge. And at a certain point, people will demand better. Exactly. So it's a, it's a, it's a combination of a, a bottom-up approach of consumers becoming more aware uh, and a top-down approach of uh, governments taking their responsibility, organizations taking their responsibility, manufacturers taking their responsibility. I mean, the thing is we work with a fully traceable uh, cocoa bean. So we have yeah. a bean-to-bar concept that we say. So we can trace our, our, uh, our chocolate back to the farmer that grow the beans. Uh, and, and then you go there and you create long-term relationships with these farmers, with the cooperatives that they're united in. And once you've been there on the ground and you've seen these people and you met these people and you see and, and we see them as equal entrepreneurs, right? I mean, they sell yeah. their produce to us so we can make chocolate for our consumers. Uh, and you see these kids walking around, your life changes once you yeah. really when you once you've been into that system. And I find it really hard that there are some uh, chocolate manufacturers that would hide behind the excuse of not knowing where their cocoa beans come from because they simply buy them off the world market because that is how the system works. And it gives you a great excuse to wash your hands in innocence and say, we don't know where our beans come from, so we don't know if there's any forced child labor. Well, that's a ridiculous argument, right? Because we show that you can have that full traceability. And I think any manufacturer and any brand should have this complete transparency within their value chains. Everybody mm. needs to take responsibility for their full value chain until the core of this planet, I would say. Yeah. No, well said. So, I mean, in terms of how Tony's Chocoloni is doing things differently, you touched on it sounds like a big thing, which is transparency end to end of full supply chain. Are there, are there any other big ways that your model is, is different than the traditional chocolate model? So we think that transparency is essential, right? So the, the transparency in the value chain, taking full responsibility for your value chain is essential. Uh, it's about, and why is that essential? Because then you can pay a higher price to the farmer directly for their produce. 
right? So on top of the uh, farm gate price, we pay a fair trade premium. And on top of the fair trade premium, we pay another additional tonnage premium to really bridge the gap towards a living income reference price that we think the farmer should be able to earn from their produce. Uh, it's about creating long-term relationships with these farmers. Uh, it's about helping them increase the productivity, the quality of the cocoa beans that they produce. So for example, when we started with this full trace community, about 30% of the cocoa beans that we bought in Ghana uh, weren't uh, good enough to make chocolate from. Now it's less than 1% from the uh, cooperatives that we work with. So we can help them increase their, uh, their revenue uh, for the farms themselves. Uh, so it's it's a combination of these five sourcing principles, that was, as we say, that makes it possible for farmers to get out of this vicious cycle of poverty. Um, it's it's also about helping them as cooperatives stand stronger, so, so help these farmers have a stronger stand, uh, a more independent stand through training, through uh, support from NGOs on the ground, from us on the ground. So it's a combination of these five sourcing principles, we always say, that, that can help these farmers towards a better future in a, in a short sentence. So you're, you're really just rethinking the entirety of the supply chain and how one buys this agricultural product of cocoa and turns it into chocolate. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, it's, and again, it's not about... It's not about us doing this, right? Yeah. It's about, I mean, the other day I was, I was, uh, I gave a lecture and there were a couple of bankers and they said, but is it weird that you want, because the, the last step in our strategy, the first step in our strategy is to create awareness. Yeah. The second step is to simply show that it can be done. Yeah. And the third is to inspire other others to copy our value chain, to do what we're doing, to take our responsibility themselves. So these bankers said, isn't it weird you want to get rid of your uniqueness, eh? your you and your USP? I said, well, I don't think we should differentiate based on basic human rights, right? Huh. We should differentiate based on taste, on packaging, on marketing, whatever you want to do, but not on basic human rights. This is something we should all do, and from there we can differentiate from each other. That's really so powerful. Our uniqueness is to get rid of the uniqueness. Yeah, no, that's really powerful. It's counterintuitive. I, I understand the banker's logic that, wait, but why would you want people to copy your sourcing model? Isn't that part of your intellectual property? But you're saying, no, this sourcing model is how everybody should be sourcing. Right, and our end game is to become obsolete. Whoa. <laughs> our, our end game is to really reach that mission of 100% slave-free chocolate worldwide, yeah. and then we'll, ha we'll have a great big party, and then we'll think what, what next we can tackle, right? Because yeah. there's still a lot of hidden uh, child labor in different industries, in shipping, in entertainment, in fashion. Yeah, so maybe no. we'll come out with Tony's onesies or something. We're not that good in fashion, as you just heard, but we'll do our best. Onesies, you heard it here first. That's that's incredible. No, I mean it sounds I'll one. I promise, Riley. I'll promise we won't do that. Yeah, your board, your board of directors is listening to this. Like what? <laughs> yeah. It sounds interestingly uh, similar to a lot of the movement you've seen in coffee as well. That that was an industry that until pretty recently had pretty opaque supply chains, and then people started saying no, like people are barely scraping by growing this stuff while we in the West are charging exorbitant prices for it. That's ridiculous. It must stop. And, you know, then we had this whole artisanal coffee movement where you have like full, you know, direct trade. And uh, yeah, it, it strikes me as, as kind of similar there. Are there, are there other kind of businesses or organizations you drew inspiration from in developing this model? Um, I, I, <laughs> 
I mean, we're inspired every day by organizations around us, right? And, yeah. and, and that would mostly be B Corps, honestly. There's a lot of certified B Corps around us that I find very inspiring. And I, the most obvious one that the whole world always mentions is Patagonia, which I love myself as well for how they do things. But there's tiny brands left and right also in the Netherlands uh, that have become very successful with uh, uh, while still being very purpose-driven from the core. Um, but unfortunately, in our industry, we, I, th- I would say we perhaps were one of the first, at least the first that was really on shelf with, uh, with uh, uh, chocolate for everyone in the retailers, uh, trying to save that, uh, change the system from within. But we're inspired every day by these things. But I think the most important thing for us is uh, to really stick to our guns, right? Stick yeah. to our focus. And, and I think our success comes from a ridiculous focus. Yeah. I mean, I think our, our success comes from not picking up different opportunities every day that come, that, that cross our path, but to sticking to making chocolate. I mean, we make three things, big bars, small bars, and tiny bars. And that's all we do. We do them in a, in a load of different recipes, surprising recipes. Why? Because then people keep talking about you. And when people talk about you, they notice you. And when yep. they notice you, they start copying you. And then we'll change the system. Hmm. It strikes me that part of the problem with the traditional chocolate industry is that consumers have become conditioned to expect a rare tropical fruit like cocoa to be made into a very cheap dessert. So how do you go about getting consumers to be willing to pay more for ethically sourced chocolate? First of all, if, if we were at the bar now talking about this, I would debate even whether we're more expensive than other chocolate. All right. Uh, because we have big, bulky, chunky bars. Yeah. So they tend to be heavier than the other bars on shelf. So they appear more expensive, but per gram, they aren't, aren't that much, or per ounce, you guys would probably say, not much more expensive. Uh, and if they are, then I would beg to differ and say the others probably are too cheap. And the only way they hmm. can be produced that cheap is by having... Uh, uh, very low paid farms in the beginning of the value chain. Yeah. Having said that, um, and there's also, for example, the Dutch, uh, the biggest Dutch retailer, Owen Hein, joined us on the Tony's Open Chain platform last year, which is really about joining forces and changing that system from within. Their bars, when they started using the same five, five sourcing principles as we discussed earlier on, didn't become much more expensive than eight to 10 cents for the consumer. Really? The consumers co- completely appreciate that because uh, it doesn't need to become more expensive. I, and I also think on top of that, uh, but this is an ongoing discussion in sustainability anyhow, if these producers at the end of the value chain would simply uh, be content with a slightly lower net profit, still a profit, don't get me wrong, I'm an entrepreneur to the bone and we're commercial as hell. Yeah. But if they, would, if they would be content with a lesser amount of net profit, then we could divide a bit of that value fairly within the value chain towards the farmers in the beginning of the value chain too. Yeah. That's okay. So it sounds like one, it's, it's not actually that much more expensive to buy ethically exactly. sourced chocolate. And exactly. I guess another follow-up question I had thinking about that was, isn't it true that a lot of these commercial bars, like a Nestle bar, for example, the majority of what you're eating is not in fact chocolate. It's, it's milk, sugar, stabilizers, flavoring agents, yeah. not actually the yeah, cocoa. It's not. That, exactly. So that's part of the, the part of the thing as well. So if you really want to uh, do good, 
eat dark chocolate. Hmm. Uh, one, because it has the highest cocoa count. Yeah. So you you bring back the most value to the beginning of the value chain for the cocoa farmer. And two, the CO2 emissions on a dark chocolate bar are way lower than a milk chocolate bar because the majority of milk chocolate uh, or CO2 emissions comes from the milk powder in milk chocolate. Hmm. So you're doing a, a, the world a favor by eating dark chocolate. All right. Dark chocolate for the planet. I think a lot of people I know could get behind that. Yeah. <laughs> are there are there other challenges facing the chocolate industry besides labor? Well, there's, uh, there's uh, sustainability issues, obviously, and right? yeah. climate crisis, changing, uh, uh, changing climate in Western Africa. We see this happening already. So we support our farmers with uh, farming techniques uh, and, uh, for example, uh, teaching them that they can grow more shade trees because cocoa loves uh, shade. So you plant a couple of higher trees in between, so it gives shade to the cocoa trees. Uh, simple tricks like leaving the leaves on the ground and not raking them because they keep the moisture in the ground, stuff like that. Mm. Uh, but it's something we're really uh, looking at as well. And for example, for us as a company, uh, we uh, are making our cocoa butter locally now in Abidjan in Ivory Coast. So there's a couple of big upsides to that. One, it diminishes the CO2 emissions on the cocoa butter shipping by about 50%. Two, there's two crops of cocoa beans that uh, uh, come out every year, of which only one is exported, because uh, they are the best quality cocoa beans to make chocolate of. Um, but we can use the lesser quality uh, crop as well for making cocoa butter, so we can buy both crops of the farms now and pay a premium on both of the crops that they sell to us. So there's many upsides to uh, to that, for example, and uh, our shipping as a company, we're uh, uh, offsetting that with biofuels, etc. But for the farmers, yes, there are sustainability issues. There's also uh, very big issues when it comes to deforestation mm. uh, in those countries. So what we've done, we've done GPS mapping across the, all of our farmers, so we know exactly what the location locations of their uh, farms and plantations and fields are so we can keep track whether that nears the areas where you have deforestation issues and up to now we haven't run into it but we're looking at it uh, in case we would run into it how we can uh, uh, remediate this and how can we help we help these farmers uh, relocate for example to a different location where you wouldn't have any uh, deforestation issues but there's there's big issues in that field Jess. So uh, chocolate, like, you know, other tropical commodities, um, like coffee is like, it, it is also on the, uh, the the front lines of climate change in some way, it sounds like. Yeah, but that isn't everything nowadays. Unfortunately, That's true. you don't realize yeah. that, right? No, no, you're totally right. I mean, I'm recording this from Northern California, where right now, uh, you know, the Bay Area is ringed by four different small, not even, not small, <laughs> that's the wrong way to put it. Their Bay Area is ringed by four different fires, some of which are relatively small, uh, you know, and then some of which are enormous. Uh, and there's, yeah, that's yeah, just no, my, yeah, my part of Northern. relatively small is about the size of our country. You know, exactly. Yeah. The, there's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a fire outside of uh, Salinas where a lot, most of, uh, not even California, but the U.S.'s lettuce is grown that's about the right. size of San Jose, the city that's right. just north of there, which is insane. Um, yeah, so you bring up a good point that ultimately any any food stuff is in some way going to be affected by, by climate change. Um, yeah. You know, your company seems very much of this moment uh, in time. And what I mean by that is that it's, it strikes me there's kind of this critical mass of what I would call supply chain journalism these days, you know, things like Netflix is rotten and omnivore's dilemma by Michael Pollan and documentaries like food Inc. You know, basically consumers are waking up and they're starting to become aware that a lot of their beloved 
foods are in fact problematic or at least very complicated to get from field to fork or field to table or, or store or whatever. So I'm curious to hear, like, what do you think has caused this critical mass? Like, why is there suddenly this big interest in supply chains? I think awareness amongst consumers about uh, having to move towards more sustainable practices has really grown over the last decade or two decades, maybe even. Uh, So people are really seeing that they can make an impact, however small they can make an impact by changing their buying patterns, uh, by buying local, by uh, not wasting food. Uh, and, And that awareness has really risen. And I think, well... Uh, the the current pandemic that we find ourselves in also has a link with uh, with food, right? Uh, yeah. Initially, uh, and it's about how we treat the planet uh, and how uh, disconnected we've become from nature. Uh, so, so I believe people are more interested in 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 more sustainable ways for themselves, more sustainable living. Um, and this is part of it. People are interested in, in knowing what's happening uh, across the globe. And also, it obviously helps that uh, in internet and, and more curiosity in current youth uh, to how their future will look is all interlinked, intertwined, right? Yeah. You know, there's kind of a pessimist. I would, by the way, highly recommend the Rotten episode about uh, Coco. Yeah. It, it's amazingly interesting uh, one in the second uh, season of Rotten. That one is on my watch list. I got to check it out. I saw the episode they did about sugar, which I found just devastatingly uh, sad because, you know, to my earlier point about Caribbean sugar, obviously it used to be grown by slaves. Today it's grown by, you know, they're they're freed folks working in places like the Dominican Republic, but the conditions are still utterly brutal, you know, really hot days. And they literally have to burn the fields as part of the maintenance. And that's really hot. They're paid almost nothing. And they're totally dependent on these big sugar buying conglomerates. You know, it actually struck me as you're talking to be not that different from the things you're talking about with cocoa, where you have this working class that's growing the sweet product that's basically utterly at the mercy of the people that are buying it, which is obviously super tragic on a lot of levels. Yeah, I think watching these things opens your eyes in terms of how you treat the food you you take yourself, about how you treat food waste. I mean, I was I was amazed about the fact that across the globe you still get uh, bags of sugar with your coffee, even though I haven't used sugar for the last two decades in my coffee. Yeah, and I think they all chucked them away afterwards, and I was just wondering how many pounds. Of, of sugar will be thrown away each and every day by just giving it away with your cup of coffee or even <laughs> wasting coffee, right? Once you've been to coffee fields in Central America and you see how much labor it is uh, for, for just one simple cup of coffee, you treat your coffee differently, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing yeah. with chocolate, I think. Once you become aware, you're responsible and then you can act upon that responsibility. No, well said. I think there, there's kind of a cynical counter argument to that, which is, you know, awareness is cheap and that a lot of people are still basically acting the same. I'm curious to hear, are you optimistic or pessimistic that this kind of growing consumer awareness will actually lead to lasting change? <laughs> a wise founder of a, a highly successful electric car company at the moment once said, I'd rather be uh, pessimistic and uh, wrong than optimistic and right. Um, and uh, I, I don't think we have uh, I don't think we have the option of being pessimistic, right? Because then we become fatalistic. I yeah. think uh, I think we should. Uh, uh, I think yeah. I think I'm optimistic. I think we can change this. I think if I look at the current generation that's growing up, uh, they. Um, 
they have a different mindset when it comes to sustainability. Uh, and I'm really uh, uh, hopeful about when I look at the current generation uh, of entrepreneurs coming up, uh, if you see the initiatives left and right, uh, the fact that if we were to go to a festival a decade ago, right, it was all hamburgers. And now it's all vegan, vegetarian, and delicious food everywhere, right? So we're really yeah. waking up, I think. So I am optimistic. I'm slightly pessimistic now and then and depressed by the fact that some people just aren't changing. I like, I'm like, can't you really see it? I mean, is that it? Why, why are you completely denying it? And I think a big re- reason for that is that many people see change as an admittance to guilt. And people don't mm. want to feel guilty. Yeah. But right? if you change, you, you, you could say, then I've done it wrong in the past. So I'd rather keep doing what I'm doing just to be right, even though we're heading towards the cliffs. Yeah, I, and 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 that's a wrong. So I I am optimistic, but I would I would like this to speed up slightly, right? The yeah. undercurrent of change is that big enough for the 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 surface current of um, of ridiculous wealth of uh, right? I mean, I mean, I sometimes get sick at looking at, and I'm again, I'm an, I'm a, I'm a liberal entrepreneur but if i yeah. look at some some excesses of wealth and uh, millions of people across the globe over the last month have lost their jobs whilst the five biggest billionaires have only become more and more rich in very short time like i yeah. can we cap that somewhere is it somebody's the other day said okay so once you become a billionaire you celebrate it for one evening after that you pay 100 percent taxes shouldn't one billion be enough right <laughs> I, yeah. I, why would you need to become a multi-billionaire? I'm like, I'm lost sometimes. But I am, coming back to your question, I am optimistic. Yeah. I, that, no, that's a really, I respect the nuance of that answer. I think you bring up a really great point, which is the, the guilt thing. And I think especially that's really true in the U.S. I think on a lot of fronts that people are really reluctant to acknowledge even that they've participated in a problematic system. I, I don't want to politicize this too much, but it and it strikes me as kind of similar to the reckoning around race and racism that's happening right now, where a lot of people, the worst possible thing in their mind is to be even called a racist or having done something racist. To them, that is a character condemnation, and they would rather not even touch the subject with a 10-foot pole than even admit, oh, and that one conversation, I said something that was racist, I'm sorry, I'm going to try to do better. Like, they would not rather not even have the conversation because to your point, they it involves an admission of guilt, an admission of fragility, humility, and that's just, it's a lot for people to do. And I think there's, there's an interesting analogy here with sustainability where a lot of people, they don't want to admit that they're participating in the toxic system, like quite literally a toxic system for this planet we live on. So they would rather just say, well, yeah, I'm just going to kind of buy and travel and eat and live and shop how I've always done. And there's nothing wrong with that because until now, no one has, has told me there's anything wrong with it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, there's a there's a very interesting deep psychology behind sustainability and the denial of the problems around it. Yeah. Uh, but that's uh, that's for a different a different moment. <laughs> well, I, I think maybe we could we could close there. And then my final question is around in terms of psychology here. What do you want people to think about when they go to buy chocolate? I want them to feel empowered to make a change, right? And, and that can be bar by bar. I think I think when you 
know the story of the bitter reality behind uh, chocolate and you stand in front of a, a chocolate shelf next time in a supermarket and you're aware of this, then is exactly the moment that you have to feel responsible. And it's not about buying our chocolate. It's about really taking responsibility for whatever you buy. I mean, any purchase you make, I always say, is a vote for the world you want to live in yourself. Each and every purchase you make. Uh, uh, so there's a responsibility with every purchase you make. So chocolate is just a very simple but very enjoyable thing. And let's make sure that we can all enjoy it throughout that value chain without having to feel guilty at the end of the value chain or without suffering consequences of being underpaid in the beginning of the value chain. Well said. That's a really empowering note to end on. I'd love to get to the speed round questions now. These are some quick closer questions to get to know you a little bit better and uh, cover some more ground. You ready to go? Go for it. All right. First one, what would you encourage folks listening to follow up with or explore in more depth on their own? Oh, this is a speed round, you said, right? This is a very <laughs> deep question. I, I want people to know that they are responsible. However small you are, you can make a difference, right? So you need to feel responsible for what you choose and what you do. Awesome. That was, that was a short answer. No, I, yeah. yeah I'm, well, I'm very, I suck at short answers. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. We have that in common. Uh, what's a positive change you've made in your life in the past year that you think folks should try? Um, going vegetarian. Excellent. And if you're cooking for somebody and you want to make them feel loved, what are you going to make for them? Ooh, I love to cook. So I would then tend to uh, go for either homemade pizzas in the oven in my garden or Indian food, which I think radiates love through every bite. Awesome. What ingredient could you not live without? I'm Dutch, cheese, so it's very hard for me to become vegan, but uh, I, it's, I find it very hard to live without cheese. Is there a fa- favorite type of cheese for you? Mm, I think you guys would call it Gouda, so the straight up Dutch cheese. Yes, I grew up, I grew up eating a ton of Gouda. Smoked Gouda is like, uh, I have such a soft spot for it. It's so good. <laughs> um, what, uh, so, okay, we covered ingredients. Uh, what is your least favorite thing to waste? food across the I, I don't waste food I have a freezer so I, anything I would make and stick it in my freezer as an ingredient or whatever I don't want to waste any form of food uh, but definitely for me the seed was planted before my chocolate days because I wouldn't waste a single block of chocolate obviously but uh, the seed was planted with coffee when I was traveling uh, through Central America and I realized the amount of labor around one uh, coffee bean I wouldn't waste a drop of coffee either. Well said, for sure. Uh, what is your go-to karaoke song? <laughs> uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge Tupac uh, fan, uh, but I wouldn't dare to karaoke that. <laughs> so I'd probably go with the very lame uh, Islands in the Stream or something, something typical karaoke. Okay. And who's somebody you admire tremendously and what do you admire about them? Oh, uh, I got this question the other day and it, it, it took me a long time to think about it because I would normally automatically say my sister because I think she's the strongest person in the world. But I, I, have this, I used to teach at university 
and I had a student that was struggling with uh, her career path, uh, and she was uh, she felt f- forced, obliged for ages to follow a career path, and then she became an artist, and that completely liberated her. She became a yeah. painter, and I have so much respect for people that just live from their passion, from their heart, and take uh, decisions that are not uh, the, the 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 beaten paths of careers, right? Yeah, so maybe her. Awesome. And finally, what are you grateful for this week? I am grateful for the fact that I'm, I'm really managing to do everything from home this week. I mean, I think it's, become, it's becoming a really new reality that depressed me for a while because I thrive on human interaction. Uh, but I'm, trying to, I'm starting to find my way doing that digitally. Yeah, uh, and uh, coming to peace with it, coming to terms with it, and I think perhaps as uh, as a person that was normally traveling the globe constantly, I think this is a good thing. I think uh, in um, uh, in in many places we can do without the airline travels, uh, without the face to face meetings, and we should see how we get the best out of that. Right? I mean, the the free. I have one and a half seconds travel time now instead of one and a half days if I were to go to the U.S., uh, and that gives me a lot of time to see my kids and do chores around the house as well. So, so I think that's something I'm grateful for getting coming to terms with it this week. That's a really admirable and positive attitude and outlook to close on. Inzo, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can folks learn more about you and the work that you do? I would definitely go to our website, uh, www.tonyschocoloni.com. Don't forget the S, tonyschocoloni.com. Uh, I would love people to sign our petition and become a serious friend of Tony, so they're up to speed to everything that we're doing. Uh, so definitely our website is a big source uh, of information. I would uh, get people over there, and anytime they're around in Amsterdam, drop by one of our offices or one of our stores and talk to the people in the store to learn more about what we're doing as well. Amazing. And we'll have links to everything we talked about today in the show notes and on our content website. That's thewholecarrot.com. That's where this episode and all of our podcast episodes will live. So check out thewholecarrot.com when you have a chance. And so thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Riley. Great to speak uh, through uh, this digital channel. Indeed. Take care. 